Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Tommy Vitor. John Lovett is flying back to Los Angeles from Milwaukee, I believe, allegedly after his stellar tour of the Midwest. All right. Yeah. Um, later in the pod, you'll hear Tommy's interview with Aswan Subsang from the Daily Beast. He's a White House reporter who covered CPAC, the mm-hmm. Conservative Political Action Committee conference this week. Sounded fun. Yeah. Good times. We're also going to spend some time talking about Donald Trump's bonkers speech from that conference. A new poll that shows his approval rating has ticked up to 46%. And the latest news about the field of Democrats who are fighting for the chance to replace him. Also, check out Friday's Pod Save the World bonus pod, which includes an incredible rant from Ben Rhodes. Very emotional Ben Rhodes. About Jared Kushner. <laughs> yeah, J- Ben hadn't seen the report that uh, Trump actually intervened to get Jared his top secret clearance. So I made him, I read it to him in real time and he flipped out. But really it was an episode about the North Korea summit and why it failed. We also talked about India, Pakistan, some developments out of Israel. Netanyahu might go to jail. Spoiler alert. Uh, no, fun bonus. It's a great pod. Uh, also check out Friday's Pod Save America bonus pod. That's an interview with Pete Buttigieg by like Dan Mayor Pfeiffer. Pete. Mayor Pete. Great guy. Um, and a brand new Lover Leave It that was recorded in <laughs> Chicago last week is currently out as well. Uh, finally, check out organizingcore2020.com. This is a brand new program from some of the best field organizers in the country mm-hmm. uh, that will recruit, pay, and train college students to work on the 2020 presidential cycle starting this year over the course of seven weeks. <coughs> Uh, you can earn $4,000 learning project management, organizing, digital communication, and data analytics. After five days of national training led by veteran campaign staff, core members will work in their neighborhoods with their local Democratic Party to turn their training into on-the-ground experience organizing neighborhoods and registering voters. Programs kicking off in Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. This is a fantastic program. So if you're in college and thinking about working on a presidential campaign but don't know where to begin, Start here. Go to OrganizingCore2020.com and apply or donate to help the cause. It costs $10,000 to support one organizer through the program, so every little bit helps. Yeah, and so if you're listening and you're not a college kid who wants to work on a campaign, just know how important this is because when you're running a presidential campaign, you go from like 300 to 5,000 field staffers, and you need those people trained and ready to go. So if you donate to this OrganizingCore2020.com campaign, you're helping get a whole crop of kids trained this summer so they're ready to go as soon as the next nominee staffs up for the general election. Yeah. It's critical. And this is a great program. I mean, they're also going to focus Organizing Core on mentoring college students from communities of color who have often been underrepresented among campaign staff. And the program is going to ensure that the eventual Democratic nominee has the support of a 1,000 homegrown field organizers who are ready to hit the ground running as soon as that person's the nominee. So, you know, as everyone's in, you know, fighting it out in the primary, it's going to be really important 
you know, this is our Unify or Die Fund too. Once we have a nominee, make sure that nominee is well-funded and make sure that nominee has a staff of young people who are ready to be organizers all throughout the country. Yes. Really great program. Check it out. All right. Let's start with Donald Trump, who had himself quite a weekend. Uh, After the collapse of his nuclear summit with Kim Jong-un in Vietnam, which the president tweeted was partly the fault of Michael Cohen's testimony. That seemed uh, (laughs) questionable, especially since he said, Trump said he walked away. So is he blaming Cohen's testimony for why he walked away? Yeah, I know like, logic is irrelevant here. But there's like, no logic. On. Yeah, he got upset by the testimony and then decided to leave the summit. Like Kim Jong-un <laughs> was like, I was going to give him uh, more in terms of nuclear programs I will shut down. But, you know, Michael Cohen really steered me away. Yeah, I'm worried he's implicated in a crime now. And God, this isn't the straight shooter I was hoping to negotiate with. Fucking baby. Um, so Trump then delivered a speech to right-wing activists at the Conservative Political <laughs> Action Conference. A speech that lasted two hours. It was the longest speech of his presidency, or maybe any presidency. It's like Fidel Castro, (laughs) Hugo Chavez at the UN length speaking. Um, So we do have a clip from the speech that uh, our pals at Saturday Night Live put together. It was on Weekend Update, and I thought that's probably the best best highlight reel. So we're going to play that for you right now. It's the appropriate context. Yeah. Our country's in big trouble, folks, because we have to get it back. (laughs) Darling, is the wind blowing today? I'd like to watch television, darling. The attorney general says, I'm going to recuse myself. And I'm in the White House, and I was lonely. I said, let's go to Iraq. So I met generals I didn't know. General one, general two, general three. I said, what's your name? Sir, my name is Raisin. What the hell kind of a name? I said, Raisin, like... The fruit? Seven trillion dollars and we have to fly in with no lights. Please get us the emails. Please. I'm going to regret this speech. (laughs) (laughs) What a great kicker. Wow. Uh, Man. So I know that you're going to talk to Swin about this later, but um, what else did we miss here from the speech? I know that uh, you were a masochist like I was, and you I think you watched even more of the speech I than I did, but it. we were texting about it on Saturday. I mean, like, the, the truest thing he said is, uh, you know, I'm totally off script, right? This is how I got elected, by being off script. I mean, the speech was wildly entertaining. Yeah. To me at home, to the people in the room, he was ranting, he was raving, he was saying crazy things. They had one piece of news they were trying to make, which was some executive order they're pretending they're going to offer that will help protect conservatives on campus. And he actually brought up a kid who got punched in the face at Berkeley, which is obviously terrible. But there's nothing that these big Republican audiences love more than like an aggrieved college Republican. So that was presumably the the message of the day. But, I mean, the guy starts 45 minutes late. He goes for two hours plus. I mean, like, darling is the wind blowing today. I'd like to watch television. That's him ranting about wind energy, apparently not understanding that a thing called batteries exist that can store (laughs) power. I mean, like, the whole thing was just wild. And then, I mean, he's just – everything he does is counterintuitive in terms of all the old rules of politics. Like, going out and just ranting about Bob Mueller for 20 minutes. He called, he called the Mueller investigation bullshit. <laughs> yeah, he, he called said it bullshit, bullshit twice. They're trying to take me out with bullshit. Uh, and then he's repeatedly denied that he ever made fun of Jeff Sessions or his accent. And then he just did it from the stage. Smocked his accent. You know, so, like, the people in the room loved it. Imagine if a Democratic president mocked the accent of a Southerner. It, it would be <laughs> treated as a career-ending slight. Uh, he also, so he called them investigation bullshit. He said the new Green New Deal would eliminate cars, planes, buildings, and cows. There was a lot of cow talk <laughs> of at cow CPAC farting. the yeah. whole fucking weekend. Uh, he attacked the Federal Reserve chairman that he appointed. Uh, he mocked the Washington Post's Dave Weigel for not flying private. Um, he accused Democrats 
of executing babies and hating our country. Ooh, one really interesting and probably very stupid thing he did was he, in recounting how he fired Jim Comey, mm. he talked about how he had a conversation with Melania, the first lady, about why it might be a good or bad decision, which probably implicates her oh, in bummer. all of these investigations. Melania like, is going to go down on the obstruction they, they charge. They just made now. her a witness. <laughs> it's so stupid. I will say, it, it, it's one of those speeches that it's like, you're watching it and you are laughing but it's also absolutely terrifying. It's, yeah. I mean, some of the shit, even that, like, yeah, the news they were trying to make was some executive order that mandates the protection of free speech on college campuses and takes away federal funding from colleges that somehow doesn't protect free speech. But, like, there's no definition away, of that. There's yeah. no way. How, how would you enforce that? It's, like, such a thing. Uh, he literally also hugged the American flag. He dry-humped it. He dry- <laughs> I mean, it, it was real. I mean, go watch the clip. It's it was really fucking weird. Weird. The man is unwell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we know that's obvious, but you watch that for terrorists and you're like, and, and especially we've been watching all of these Democrats do their announcement speeches. Yeah. And it's like, no matter how you feel about any of these candidates, they're just like normal people delivering speeches, like it's happened right. in politics right. forever. And then there's Donald Trump out there just fucking saying crazy shit. Yeah, I mean, well, I watched Bernie's announcement speech immediately after I watched Trump because C-SPAN just rolled one to the other and that was how bored I was on Saturday. And, <laughs> you know, it was it was frankly hard to focus on a normal speech about policy after the two-hour Trump show. And, like, yeah. like I, I don't like that I feel that way. Right. I, I'm embarrassed when I think back of how entertaining the debates were in 2016. But, like, this is what we're running up against this time, well, 2020. Do you think there was a message buried somewhere in the madness? Uh, and did the speech tell you anything about how he's going to campaign in 2020? Um, yes. I mean, I, I think that what it tells us about how he's going to campaign in 2020 is that he will be just as loose and undisciplined as he was last time. He's going to say all this wild, bizarre stuff, and he's going to try to entertain his audience and keep his base and keep media attention on him at all times. I mean, the reason that could be an effective strategy is because ultimately he has Fox News and the right-wing press there to be his communications director, to filter out all the best messaging, the best polling stuff, and then air that. Yeah. And the rest of the press corps is like, how the hell do we even begin to fact-check this? And even when you do, no one cares. I mean, Swin and I talked about this. Like, Trump was saying in the speech, literally no one has left the speech the whole time. It's amazing not one of you has walked out. I've been going for two hours, and you could see people streaming out. I mean, it reminds you of Michael his conversation with Michael Cohen, where he's like, yeah. there was no Russia uh, business being done during the campaign. You know we weren't investing in Russia. We just lies to your just face. Just lies. Doesn't matter. I thought it was interesting in a few ways. Like, he had the... Um, immigrants are invading us and coming to kill you argument, which was basically, you know, the centerpiece of his 2018 midterm campaign. That's mm-hmm. all he talked about. Immigrants invading, caravans, invade, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it didn't work for him in 2018, largely. He had the, yeah. one of the worst midterm defeats in history. Um, so he had that in there. He's also added uh, accusing Democrats of infanticide, executing babies based on this, like, complete lie about late-term abortions. Yeah, and they're really going and hard on that. He's going hard on that. They're going to go hard on that in 20 uh, because that's how they're going to keep the evangelicals, get them excited. So he's got the xenophobia going for the folks who who are interested in mm-hmm. that. He's got the uh, infanticide going for the uh, evangelical conservatives. The other thing I thought he'd been missing so far was in 16... Um, he really was anti-establishment and had this sort of populism going, right? He went yeah. after the establishment. Yeah. He went after corruption in Washington. He talked about the swamp. He talked about jobs going overseas, outsourcing. He didn't have any of that in 18. And I think what he did here is all the talk about socialism. 
um, and the Green New Deal and all that kind of stuff. What he's trying there is, I mean, it's interesting. It's not, he doesn't talk about socialism like it's going to cost too much money. It's government's too big. It's, uh, you know, that like Republicans have traditionally talked about it. He said, socialism is about only one thing. It's called power for the ruling class. And it is very yeah, like he's going to he's trying to get that 2016 sort of anti-establishment message back by saying that socialism basically is all the libs and Democrats that you hate consolidating all this power in the government. So it's like the people that you don't like the most are going to be running the country yeah. if you don't elect me. I mean, they, they probably know just as well as we do that what was in the NBC poll over the weekend that yeah. socialism does not poll very well among the general population. Um I like in terms of how Democrats should deal with this. I mean, I'd love to see some polling on the best attack on Trump, but like, here's one option, right? So if I'm Elizabeth Warren on the stump today, I say, "Did you see Donald Trump at CPAC this weekend? He gave a bizarre, rambling, profane two-hour speech at a conservative conference." But you know, it was the most offensive thing about that conference. It's run by a shady lobbyist, yeah. and that shady lobbyist has a wife who's a White House communications director. The swamp is not drained, folks. Therefore, I propose the following lobbying reforms, right? Like, you need to talk about what he did, but use it to pivot to your message so you actually get covered. Because this rambling two-hour nonsense did drown out, partially, uh, the North Korea news, drowned out the Cohen hearing, right? It's a new, big, shiny object that everyone has to cover because it's nuts. Yeah, and I think I think that that's exactly right. I think you could also say, like, in two hours, did Donald Trump say one thing about... Um, people who can't pay their medical bills? Did he say one thing about people whose wages aren't enough to actually pay the rent or pay their mm -hmm. bills or anything like that? Did he say anything about the challenges that you're facing in your life right now? No. No. He just, it was all, it was, I mean, Kamala Harris does this well when she talks about the wall as his vanity project, right? It was, it's always about Donald Trump. It's always about him. It's about his power, enriching himself, enriching his friends, yeah. and like helping, you know, basically, Dancing with the people that brought him, which are the right-wing activists in CPAC, and it had very little for anything else, anyone else. Yeah, that was a what a weird conference. Um, all right, well, let's talk. You brought the, up the uh, NBC Wall Street Journal poll. Let's talk about Trump's standing heading into 2020. Uh, this poll that was out this weekend found that 41% of voters would re-elect Donald Trump today, and 48% would vote for a generic Democrat. Trump's approval has ticked up to 46% in the poll, which is roughly the same as Barack Obama and Bill Clinton at this point in their mm -hmm. first terms. Uh, he's got the approval of 90% of Republicans, um, and 59% of Republicans don't think that another Republican should challenge Trump in the primary. Um, Tommy, what do those numbers tell you about the president's strength as a candidate in 2020? Uh, I mean, it's a good reminder, and we all need to hear these reminders frequently that this is a 50-50 re-election and that most incumbents get re-elected and we should approach this as an uphill battle. I mean, yeah. his his approval rating has been remarkably stable since he took office in January 2017. It's like the NBC Journal poll has had him between 43 and 47 percent approval that that's whole time. And we should say that is very unlike almost any president in recent history. Yeah. Uh, like Obama, Bush, Bill Clinton have all had much bigger swings than that. It is yeah. very, very stable. Yeah, and look, I mean, another important data point is that a majority of Americans are confident in this economy. And so I think we also need to remember that that's a pretty significant ballast for any president. And people are going to, you know, give him credit for that and, and probably understandable. And I think, I mean, Republicans are going to stick by him. And the 
Uh, his poll numbers in fe- January and December when they were lower during the shutdown, uh, a lot of this was Republicans sort of drifting away from him, particularly non-college white men. Mm-hmm. Um, but those people are going to get angry with him from time to time. Yeah. They're always going to be back. You cannot count on those voters. And I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's news this week that enough Republican senators are going to vote against the uh, emergency declaration so that he can build his wall on the border. And, you know, it's great that Republicans are joining Democrats in the Senate to vote uh, against his declaration. Uh, they don't have the votes to override his veto on it. But that's going to be the exception rather than the rule, that kind of thing. Because when you have 90 percent of Republicans sticking with you, like that's you also it tells you something about why right. these Republican politicians in Congress are acting the way they act and sticking by him because their voters are with him. And, you know, the ones in the House are in gerrymandered districts, so they only have to answer to Republican voters mostly. Right. And a lot of the Republican senators are in these sparsely populated rural states where there's all Republican voters, too. So the polarization is such that um, the reason that these people, we all say, oh, they all act cowardly, they do, but that's because their electorates want this. Yeah, I mean, look at Lindsey Graham, right? Like, he's the yeah, best example exactly. of someone who pretended to be a maverick when John McCain was around, and that was his brand, and now that he's worried about a primary, he's all in for Trump. And in part, you know, look, you look at these numbers, some bad news for Trump, four in 10 say they'd reelect him, but 58% do not think he's been honest and truthful regarding the Russia probe. 60% disapprove of the recent national emergency. So maybe that's why you're finding some guys, who, uh, some senators who are up in, in 2020 uh, opposing him finally on this issue and potentially uh, voting for a resolution that would block his ability to do this emergency declaration. But I, I wouldn't anticipate any courage among Republican elected officials anytime soon. We need to get every Democrat to turn out. We need to get independents to turn out overwhelmingly for us. It's going to be tough. Yeah. I mean, the other sort of warning sign, too, uh, he leads a generic Democrat 4640 mm-hmm. in uh, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Yeah, all the now, states. I don't know why they picked those five states. Like, if I had been trying to sort of correlate these polling numbers, I don't think I would have thrown Indiana in no, there, which we don't have a chance. So, you know, that's just something to keep in mind. But he also trails a generic Democrat 50 to 39 in Arizona, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and Texas, which mm-hmm. is almost more surprising that yeah, the Democrat has the lead by that, that much in those states. It was baffling to me, <laughs> to be honest, that Georgia and Texas, the, yeah. the generic Democrat is winning. Well, look, and this is what we're going to talk about next, but I think uh, what you were just saying is we have to, we have to win Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania yes. in 2020. Yes. Uh, some combination of states, but at least we have to win Pennsylvania. We have to win Michigan, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin. If you've got some of those southern states, you could probably do without it. But regardless, those three states are very, very important. You have to get all the Democrats in those states. You also have to get a lot of the independents in those states and the people who have voted Democrats in the past but are up for grads and up for grabs and people who haven't voted. And so it's not easy to get them. No, <laughs> so as we're talking about like how a Democrat can put together a coalition, if you're not figuring out how you can win Pennsylvania, how you can win Michigan, Wisconsin, then um, you're, uh, you're going to be in some trouble. So mm-hmm. let's talk about the Democrats. The NBC Wall Street Journal poll asked Democratic voters about their preferences in a 2020 nominee poll found that by a 15-point margin, Democrats would rather vote for a nominee whose views on issues are in line with theirs than vote for one who gives the party the best chance of beating Trump next year. 55% said they want a candidate whose policies would bring about major change but cost more, while 42% prefer a candidate whose policies would bring about less change but cost less. And yet, only 45% of people who intend to vote in the Democratic primary said they'd be comfortable with a socialist candidate. 
Uh, 33% say they'd be comfortable with a candidate 75 or older, which is another warning sign. Uh, and more than 90% of Democratic respondents would be comfortable or enthusiastic with an African-American, a woman, or a white man. About 80% said same about an LGBT candidate. Um, Tommy, what do those numbers tell you? And was there anything else that jumped out at you about Democrats in that poll? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, so socialism polled poorly with the entire data set. I think it was 18% favorable, 50% unfavorable. Of all voters, yeah. Yeah, of all voters. Capitalism was 50% favorable, 90% unfavorable. And then the, the numbers you mentioned, I mean, a very low percentage of, of people in this poll said they would vote for a socialist or someone over age 75. So I think a lot of people rightly pointed at those numbers as a warning sign for Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, obviously checks both those boxes. That said, I mean, I, I what I think it speaks to is uh, the disconnect between how we label policies and the policies themselves. Because yeah. most voters want 55% want the government to do more to solve problems and meet their needs um, compared to 41% who say the government is doing too much already. Uh, and by the way, just on that number, yeah. we should know that I was looking up sort of past years on how that, that question polled. In, in 2013, that was more people wanted government to do less than do more when Obama was president in 2013. Yeah. So it does tell you something, the fact that we are at now 55% of people who want government to do more. Right. I mean, Democrats say four to one, the government should do more. Independents side with the Democratic view by 54% to 44%. So Democrats and independents do want the government to do more. Of course, Republicans think the government is too big and does too much by a two to one margin, but of course they do right. because they've been demagoguing big government forever. So I don't know that we should overlearn from the results of this poll. But I do think like th what this says to me is the Elizabeth Warren approach of embracing a lot of big, important, you know, bold democratic policies while rejecting the label of a socialist might be a very smart strategy. We won't know for yeah. a long time, but that's what I read from it. I do think it, socialism is hard to define and sort of poorly defined. Totally. Probably even by uh, democratic socialists themselves right well, now. Also, like, like <laughs> we all grew up in America and, and like we were taught as Americans that democracy and markets and capitalism are good and communism and socialism is bad and we all watch Rocky Four, and it's all tied up in cultural bullshit. Well, yeah, and like the, the today's DSA and Bernie Sanders, they're not proposing Soviet style socialism. Like. It, but I don't that's even what know. they'll be accused of. Right, of course. Oh, definitely. Venezuelan but style currently. You can't even really call Bernie Sanders' policies socialist. He's not nationalizing a single industry, right? right. He's not even, I mean, even Medicare for all, you know, Doc and Pete Buttigieg says this all the time, like the real socialist position there would be to have all the doctors and hospitals work for the government, right? Mm -hmm. That's not that's not part no, of the plan. No. The plan is to just get rid of the middleman insurance uh, right. executives there and to actually have um, doctors and hospitals and providers be reimbursed by the government. So even that's like the most far left policy, and that's not nationalizing things like socialism. Yeah. So there, I, th I, I would bet that Bernie Sanders himself Run, uh, you know, outpaces socialism. Oh, I do too. <laughs> you know, it does better. Than but it's a it is it's a, it's a warning. Sign. It's a warning sign. It's worth noting. It, it's relevant but i do think like people have learned who bernie is he's pretty popular he's big good ideas like you know he can fight it out yeah um i also thought that the uh you know only 33 percent of democrats saying they'd be comfortable with a candidate 75 or older is interesting too because the two leaders so far in all of the polls the primary polls are uh, two candidates over 75. I know. And that's <laughs> Joe where, Biden and Bernie Sanders. And that's sometimes where I think we get too specific in, in polling uh, questions. People don't really know what they want. They're just kind of guessing. Yeah. 
it is what it does is point out that they are warning signs and potential weaknesses for both Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Yeah, that agreed. if you dig in there, people are going to could have that issue. Um, so on that note, the New York Times and the Washington Post both ran stories this weekend about centrists and center left folks who are worried that Trump might get reelected if the Democratic Party is pushed too far to the left. The Times piece focused on Pennsylvania, as we said, a state that Democrats have to win back in order to win the White House. Uh, and it quotes former Democratic Governor Ed Randell saying, quote, the more we have Democrats talking about the Green New Deal, Medicare for all, socialism, the more that plays into Trump's hands. Reparations? What are we talking about? Uh, Tommy, is this something for us to worry about? I mean, <laughs> so I read the story and it annoyed me because, you know, you juxtapose quotes from Ed Rendell, who is very easy to get on the phone <laughs> if you're a yeah. reporter, uh, who was last uh, a governor in two, uh, Pennsylvania in 2011. And more recently, and is now the governor of the Morning Joe Green. Well, room. exactly. He spends a lot more time in D.C. and in green rooms, right? You juxtapose those quotes from Ed Rendell with Coleman Lamb, who is Connor Lamb's brother, who was recently elected to Congress, who said that personal qualities mattered more to voters than ideology. And he said, "quote I don't think the only way to win is someone who's proactively goes to the middle. I think it's more important uh, to have someone who's authentic, who says what they actually believe in things." So, you know, th- the framing tends to be, uh, "Oh, we're too liberal for the party," but I, I like. What really bothers me about these stories, I really think the undercurrent here is race. And they just don't say it. Because in the Times story, this Pennsylvania story, one woman says Democrats only want to help people on welfare. One guy says he doesn't think a woman could run the country. A retired sheriff says none of the 2020 Democrats could get his vote because, quote, the Democrat Party let their people down. They were going so far in, into the different extremes that they forgot to put them in office, the middle class white male. So it's like so many of these, these articles about what states we should focus on or what candidates should be there are about race and gender in this country. And it would be, I think, better serve the reader if they were a little more overt about it. Yeah, so there's that. That's, that's going to be a huge problem. And look, if there are people who are uncomfortable with women candidates, uncomfortable with uh, black candidates, or think that the Democratic Party uh, favors um, black Americans and women or, or any other minorities too much, then um, we're not going to get those people back. <laughs> Those people are probably lost. And they're a very small minority, which we just learned from the NBC Wall Street Journal poll. Right. Uh, On the other hand, there are people like in this New York Times story, uh, a longtime Democrat who voted for Trump, but then voted for Connor Lamb in 18 and now says his vote is up for grabs. And you think, okay, Trump voter voted for Connor Lamb. Who's this guy wanting to vote for? Like a Joe Biden type? And he goes, probably Kamala. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so it's 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 not all it's not always about race, right? And and some of these and I think, you know, um Sean McElwee and the folks at Data for Progress did like a real great deep dive into uh vote switchers, right? So people who voted for Trump in 16 but voted Democrat in 18. And um one of the uh most interesting things that they found was the, the some of the vote switchers were more populist than either loyal Democrats or loyal Republicans. Mm-hmm. And they define populism as like, you know, I trust in the in the wisdom of ordinary people more than experts. The system is stacked against people like me, mm-hmm. right? And so those voters are possibly ripe for the Democrats to win back. And I think figuring out – now, that doesn't mean to get those voters back that we should ever abandon our values when it comes to race, when it comes to gender, when it comes to anything else. But framing our argument in economically populist terms and trying to persuade those mm-hmm. voters – is incredibly important. Right. And it's the only way to win Pennsylvania. And, and those, it, yeah, and I guess this is what annoys me about these stories is Barack Obama was elected two times in a lot of these same states with a populist 
economic message. Right. And it sometimes seems like we've forgotten that when I read these pieces. Yeah, it is. But he was also, and he, but he was also very careful <laughs> and thoughtful about what his message was. Sure. You know, and he was he, also a person that people just liked as an as an individual. Yeah. And he look, he approached voters and he approached politics by saying like. I should not assume that these people believe what I believe necessarily. And my job is to persuade them of my agenda, right? Yeah. And we shouldn't forget that because sometimes, you know, uh, on Twitter people do. Um, so meanwhile, the Post story talked about tension on Capitol Hill within the Democratic caucus, uh, specifically over gimmicky show votes that Republicans have forced uh, House members to take, like an amendment to last week's gun control bill that passed the House. Mm -hmm. um, but the Republicans were able to get an amendment in there that would require undocumented immigrants who try to buy guns to get reported to ICE. Mm -hmm. And a few of the newer, more moderate Democrats voted for the amendment. Um, then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that by doing so, they were making themselves targets for both Republicans trying to unseat them and progressive activists. And then there was a bunch of back and forth on this. Yeah. Um, Tommy, what do Democrats do here? Is it good for these debates to play out in public or, or is this a problem? So, I mean, the debate is about something called a motion to recommit, which basically gives a minority party a chance to amend a bill going to the House floor. Uh, they almost always lose these motion to recommits because they're in minority. But with respect to this gun control bill, as you described, it was a report. It's like, do you think that uh, we should report undocumented immigrants to ICE if they try to buy a firearm? Uh, so that's a tough vote. Yeah, Th that's a very tough vote. And, you know, the background bill itself still passed. But... Um, Liberals who want to abolish ICE had to vote for a measure that was seen as empowering ICE. So that's hard for them. I tend to believe that members should be allowed to vote however they need to vote for their districts and what they believe. And I think that the harm this vote politically causes someone who wants to abolish ICE is less than the harm uh, voting against it could cause a Democrat in a safe district like a Connor Lamb. You know, so like I, I am totally fine with Democrats voting their conscience on these bills. I don't think we need to show unity on every vote in the House. I'm not sure why this is such a big deal other than everyone's constantly seeking for a, a Democrats in disarray story. I'm also fine with Democrats primarying other Democrats who are in safe seats, but we should not be doing it in toss up districts. Right. Here's the thing to understand. One of the major consequences of the Republican Party moving so far to the right and sort of marginalizing themselves in the political sphere is that the Democratic Party now has a very, very big diverse coalition. Mm -hmm. And part of that diversity is ideological, right? And we don't have the House in 2018. We do not win the House if there are not a bunch of moderate Democrats right. Right. in purple and reddish districts who were able to win their seats. And guess what? A lot of them didn't win their seats by being bold progressives. That's right. A lot of them won their seats by being... That, there's are exceptions, right? One of our favorite new members of Congress, Katie Porter, an Elizabeth Warren protege, ran in a very Republican district here in Orange County and ran a, a you know a bold progressive campaign, and she still won. But mainly, she was the exception. That's right. You know, I, I think what goes unstated in this piece and what frustrates a lot of the activists on the left is how much institutional inertia they're fighting against. Right? There's corporate interests, there's lobbyists, there's the establishment media and the consultants and the pollsters who will all default toward the status quo or the so-called like moderate middle ground. And that doesn't always align with general public opinion or, or certainly not with public opinion among Democrats. So Senator Michael Bennett is, is quoted in this piece, uh, a senator who 
I really like and respect and I think is incredibly smart and thoughtful. He says we don't want to be like the Freedom Caucus, who are like the far right members in the House. But I think that's a false comparison. Don't worry, buddy. We're a long way away from that. Yeah, like (laughs) the Freedom Caucus is a bunch of arsonists (laughs) and and political nihilists who are happy to burn the city down if it cuts government and makes it ineffective. Like, So like, take, for example, you know, you used to Katie Porter. Take, for example, uh, Congressman Harley Ruda, who won a seat in the 48th district. He was not out there talking about abolishing ICE. Um, I don't believe he's a co-sponsor of the Green New Deal legislation, but he defeated Dana Rohrbacher, who is a climate denier and a Russian stooge. So obviously we are so much better off having Harley Ruda in the House and primarying him would be idiotic. Yeah, of course. I mean, look, I think here's what we've, we've learned over the last few years, right? When you're crafting your policy and you're a Democrat, you put the politics aside, right? You, you put out a policy proposal that meets the challenges of the moment, right? Right now, we have a climate crisis. We have an economic crisis uh, in both wage stagnation and inequality. We have a political crisis. Mm-hmm. So you come up with a series of proposals that are actually going to meet those challenges. That's why you get things like the Green New Deal, Medicare for All. But you, you do what you think you want to do. Once you have those proposals then, and then you go sell them to voters in your district, it's okay if they're, if they're big and bold and progressive, even if you have a moderate district. But people are going to ask you, how much does it cost? Right. How much will it cost me? What will it change about my life? This, you know, will it change anything? Like, and the thing we can't do is wave away those questions by being like, oh, fuck deficits. Deficits don't matter. If we believe that we've cared too much about deficits, which I happen to believe, you've got to tell people why. You've right. got to persuade them. If you if you think like, oh, people will, um, you know, people will uh, take a tax increase if, for Medicare for all. Well, you got to make that case to people. Well, you know. Also, whether or not you support eliminating private insurers, you, you damn sure should be ready for the Republicans to say you do. I mean, they went around saying that Obama wanted to kill Grandma. We right. should well, assume the worst case scenario is going to come. It was death panels for us. It'll be killing all the farting cows if right. you support the Green New Deal. So well, that's yeah. Get that, ready. That's the part that is liberating for Democrats, right? Like, they're going to call you a socialist no matter what, so you might as well put out a policy that you believe is going to meet the moment, right? So that's liberating. But what we can't do is then be lazy about persuading people who might not necessarily agree with us, and I'm not talking about Republicans, we're not getting them, but I'm talking about these independents, these democratic-leaning independents. Like, we've got a job to do persuading these people that our policies are correct, and we have to answer all of their questions. Yeah, look, I agree it's liberating in one sense. In another sense, it should be sobering, because voting your conscience when the Koch brothers dump $10 million worth of bags on you can be uh, a tough way to go. Last thing I'd say, there's one member of Congress who's quoted saying, alleging that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is putting people on a Nixonian list. That wasn't really my read of what she said. I think she was trying to say, if you vote with the Republicans on these bills, progressive groups are going to notice and and could target you. She said that, and she she said that then Republicans will know that you're one of the, their targets to beat because you're a moderate in yeah. 2020. What, point out the lie. <laughs> she, right, no, that's all she was she's saying. assessing the political situation. Yeah. Like, we can't get s- these stories, you know, framed as these silly extremes when I think the solution is fairly obvious. Well, that's another piece of advice to Democrats, too, is the reporters are always going to look for a good Democrats in disarray yeah, story, right? It's and it's not because they're out to get us, right? It's just, no. that's their job. They're so, not, reporters aren't on our team. Okay? No, right. And that's not their job to be, but they are going to look for conflict at any moment, at, at any chance they get within the Democratic caucus. And, you know, I think Dan said this like last week on the pod too, like just 
stop if you're stop being an anonymous Democrat, stop being an anonymous strategist. Like if you have problems with the party, if you have problems with the strategy, resist the fucking urge to pick up the phone when the New York Times and the Washington Post call you and just lay it out there in the press because yeah. Even the tiniest disagreements are going to be magnified times a hundred when they get in the press. They sure are. I oh. don't get why you pick up the phone. Speaking of horribly <laughs> annoying yeah. people that are going to magnify I know uh, anything you say. So Howard Schultz. Venti-sized uh, asshole Howard Schultz. <laughs> <laughs> we drink Dunkin' Donuts and Pete's coffee here, and I won't hear anything else. Okay, here's what Howard Schultz tweeted. From the sad spectacle of the Cohen hearing and the craven defense of the president by Republicans to the reports of fights inside the Democratic caucus between the ascendant left wing and more moderate wing of the party, this was another sad week in American politics. So he's comparing a president who was knowingly committing crimes from the Oval Office with Democrats debating policy in right. a closed-door meeting. Having a, having a small argument about a motion <laughs> to recommit. What is wrong with you, man? But this here's the thing with with fucking Howard Schultz, right? Uh, he let his campaign like to say, you know, Howard Schultz is sick of the conventional wisdom in Washington. There is no one in the 2020 field right now that is more conventional that represents the fucking morning Joe green room, a cellar corridor view of politics than Howard Schultz. He, he was is it. molded from clay <laughs> by the conventional wisdom. That, I mean, that, that's what, he, you know, that, that's like the false equivalence Hall of Fame there. And, but now, here's <sighs> the problem. Uh, going back to that NBC Wall Street Journal poll, 38% of Americans said the two-party system is broken and it's time for a third party, and that is the highest number since 1995. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, everyone's like, oh, don't worry about Howard Schultz. Like, everyone's panicking too much. No, worry about Howard Schultz. Yeah, worry about Howard Schultz because that number should be a warning sign to people. And even if the guy gets one, two, three percent in some of these states, it could be enough to tip it. So he, he also doesn't care that he's full of shit because he's making all these wild accusations about the Democratic Party drifting left when he knows that if Biden jumps in, he is the front runner. Yeah. So your candidate could be right there, Howard. You don't need to run around attacking the Democratic Party for a couple months. Well, and also he could have run as a Democrat and tried to push the party to the center. In, in that way, but he's decided that he's too rich and he doesn't have to compete in primary. coffee sucks. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, Get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. So there's also a lot of 2020 candidate news to cover. Washington Governor Jay Inslee announced his presidential candidacy on Friday. Former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper announced his candidacy this Monday morning. Former Attorney General Eric Holder announced that he won't be running for president. And Bernie Sanders officially kicked off his presidential campaign over the weekend with big events in Chicago and Brooklyn, where his announcement speech drew a crowd of about 13,000 people, according to his campaign. Let's start there. Tommy, what did you think of Bernie's speech? So, as I said earlier, I mean, it was hard to watch uh, Trump directly into Bernie because Bernie is a a thoughtful, reasonable human being. Um, That said, I mean, I do think it was smart of Bernie to include new points about his biography, who he is, where he's from, and it's critical to tell voters, like, what informs your values. And it was a good, he drew a good contrast with Trump growing up middle class, not thinking it was cool to fire people. Um, I'll be honest, I still think Warren is doing the bio into values, into platform, the best out of anyone, but it was good progress. Uh, You know, a lot of the speech sounded like a greatest hits from the last cycle of Bernie's policies. That's not a criticism. That's uh, you know, he's a big base of support. He's moved the party to his positions in a lot of ways. So maybe that's all he needs to do to win this party. And he's going to lean into that strategy. I don't know. Like, I, I wasn't blown away by the speech. It didn't like stir emotion in me. But honestly, none of the speeches have so far. Um, what I want to see Bernie do is I'm curious for when he gets to Iowa, because he wasn't great in Iowa at the personal politics, sign your supporter card take a selfie shake every hand kiss every baby like it i understand why it feels artificial probably does to him but uh that's going to be key well look you hear this from a lot of uh dsa folks socialist people on the left Mm -hmm. they're like you know you neo-libs and everyone else spend way too much time on personality character stuff like that like what really matters is issues right like we spend too much time focused on candidates and they have a point we do focus too much on personality but when you ask voters, like voters don't spend a lot of time thinking about ideology. They want someone who believes what they believe. They want someone who shares their values. They do care a lot about issues. But just like normal human beings, they also care about the person's character. They want to know about the person's personality. And you see that Bernie's advisors, they were in their piece this weekend saying, we know that people want to know more about Bernie himself. And that's why they put that in. And I, I do like, basically the speech was his stump speech from 2016 and 2018, except for the personal stuff and the contrast with Donald Trump, which I agree, I thought was the most effective part. Yeah, it was well done. And look, I think it might be a criticism because is that stump speech, which was very powerful and very effective in 2016, enough to broaden his coalition in 2020? That remains to be seen. But it was interesting. The Trump thing made me think, and again, we've been saying this for a long time now, like Democratic candidates shouldn't focus all their energy on Trump. But as we're having all these debates within the party and so much of the coverage lately has been about are the Democrats moving too far to the left on the Green New Deal or Mm -hmm. Medicare for All, it's funny that it was Bernie Sanders, of all people, who laid out in a speech the difference between the 
Democratic candidate's agenda and Donald Trump's. Yeah. And I do think that's probably going to be important going forward because, you know, we can argue about Green New Deal or no new Green New Deal, but Donald Trump becomes president, it's, it's over. Yeah. He's a climate denier. We will not fix anything. We no. can argue about Medicare for all and what's the best way to get to Medicare for all. Donald Trump becomes president again. We're losing the Affordable Care Act. 20 million people lose their yes. health insurance. Like, we have to remember the contrast here. I agree. I look, also, obviously issues are important. They're the most important part of electing any candidate. But we're all human beings. And yeah. we, we communicate and we learn things by telling stories, not by sending around fact sheets. We just remember that. And the media sure as hell doesn't focus most of its time on issues and fact sheets. They focus on fighting and stories. And so drawing that contrast was smart. And it allowed him to tell a story about himself as juxtaposed with Donald Trump that got into all the things he believes and why he'd be a better president. Yeah. Um, you can complain that that's reality, but it's reality. It's, reality. <laughs> it's so how we elect people what in it this is. country. Um, it was, I've been thinking about, I mean, 538 did a piece on this of like what percentage of Bernie's coalition was just sort of never Hillary voters um, and whether he can win in an election this sprawling, uh, yeah. primary this sprawling with just his original base. Maybe he can't. I mean, look, maybe the whole strategy is these are the people who voted for me last time. This is why they love me. Like, let's run it back. In a big field, maybe my 25% exactly. is enough in exactly. Iowa. And, you know, he's leading in New Hampshire. And maybe that, that can be it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very possible. But, like, you know, look, these primaries, they have a way of humbling you. Yeah. Stupid things will become the focus of every single news cycle for months. Look at Hillary's emails. Bernie Sanders has never faced an attack ad. That's yeah, <laughs> which is you know that's that's a lot, and I don't know who you know. I, I'm I'm hoping that none of the Democratic candidates start attacking each other. But as this thing goes on, um, you can see that you know elbows can get sharp. Well, also, but that said, like, look, I, I hope the primary stays as positive and optimistic as possible. But I'm really glad that Reverend Wright came out during the primary for Obama, and we got to vet all, all those issues before we got the general election. Yeah, like, that's it's true. Good to kick the shit out of each other a little bit and vet and go through records and like. That's yeah. Get, makes you a better candidate, right? Um, all right, let's talk about Washington Governor Jay Inslee, who's promised to make climate change the defining issue of his candidacy. Inslee served as Washington's governor since 2013. He served in the House before that. During Inslee's time as governor, Washington has legalized marijuana, ended the death penalty, raised its minimum wage. Last year, Washington voters rejected a proposal he backed pushing for a carbon tax. It would have been the first of its kind in the country. Uh, he's also said he wants to get rid of the Senate filibuster because it's an, quote, antebellum rule in the internet age. Uh, Tommy, <laughs> what's, what's Inslee's path to the nomination here? I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> I really like Jay Inslee. Yeah. I mean, like, he, was one, he was on one of our very first live shows. We went up to Seattle and hung out yeah. with Jay Inslee. He's and straight. I don't like him just because he was nice to us. But like, we spent a lot of time with him. We, <laughs> we, we, we stayed on stage with him for like an hour as he answered detailed questions about light rail projects in the state and like all these sort of things. It's like he's very smart. Uh, he's had a lot of success. He was a governor, which I think shows you actually can can run a budget and lead a state. Um, the thing I'm not sure about is I don't think that voters view the presidency as a one-issue job. And so I wonder about the strategy of just saying, I'm going to be the climate candidate. I just don't know that that is going to fly. I'll tell you, you know who's really thought about this a lot is the people who put together the Green New Deal. And the critics of the Green New Deal will say, if climate is such a national emergency or an international emergency, right, if it's the most urgent issue of our time, why you get all this economic stuff in there? Why are you talking about health care and job guarantees and, you know, training opportunities and all that kind of shit? 
And the reason is because, you know, before 2018, Gallup found climate change is the fifth most important issue to Democratic voters behind health care and wealth inequality. So we have this issue where climate change is an existential threat to humanity, and we probably only have 10 years to really do something about it. And yet, a lot of people don't believe that in the country. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, Republicans are all climate deniers, but even our people, even Democrats are thinking like, you know, I think about my job, I think about my paycheck, I think about my health care, and they put that ahead of climate. And so the question is, how do you get people to care about this national emergency? And like, will it, you're right, like, will people look at Jay Inslee and say, this is the climate change guy and he should be president? I don't know, but good for him at least for saying, I'm going to make this part of the debate in 2020 and i'm going to do it by being the one candidate in the field who talks about it all the fucking time yeah i mean look good for him maybe it is a really smart strategy maybe it will be the reason he broke through and he's defining himself in a way that no other candidate will be i'm with you like look i i schedule uh dinners in two weeks that i don't want to do tomorrow because i like to punish my future self so like i have no idea how how voters are going to react in this situation but like that's what the primary is for yeah uh finally former colorado governor john hickenlooper announced his presidential campaign today the 67-year-old is a former brew pub owner who served as mayor of Denver and then two terms as governor during an economic expansion in Colorado where the state expanded Medicaid, legalized marijuana, and enacted gun control. Hickenlooper calls himself, quote, an extreme moderate and said in his announcement video, quote, <laughs> where does this stuff come from? Why? And said it as an announcement video, quote, I'm running for president because we need dreamers in Washington, but we also need to get things done. He told George Stephanopoulos this morning that he'd be able to bridge our political divides by sitting down with Republicans, quote, I would go to Mitch McConnell to his office and I would sit down with him and say, now, what is the issue again? And we would talk. Sounds silly, right? But this works. Does it work, Tommy? I started twitching um, <laughs> when I saw that. I, I mean, come on, man. I, look. Again, I like Hickenlooper. I, I think he's been great. As just, he's he been a great governor. He's done a lot in Colorado. He's done a lot of good things. But it, it really uh, it bog, bothers me when I see people say things like, look, we just need to have a dialogue and bring people together. That's, I used to naively believe that. In the 2007-8 race, I believed that. And then Mitch McConnell made it his life's work to d- uh, deny Obama re-election and blocked everything we did. So no, going to conservative mayors across Colorado and trying to get them to work with you is not remotely the same as going into Mitch McConnell's office and getting him to work with you because Mitch McConnell doesn't give a shit about working with you. He wants you to lose and he wants power. That's all he cares about. This is maybe the biggest challenge that all of these Democratic candidates face, right? Is when you talk to voters, like their big concern, maybe their overriding concern, is this sort of political crisis we've had in Washington for a long, long time. And they look at Washington, they say, nothing gets done. Mm -hmm. And they've said this for more than a decade now, right? And as you said, when Obama was running, his response was, that's right that nothing's getting done in Washington. Partly it's because there's too much influence from money and lobbyists. That was part of his message. Partly it's because everyone's fighting. We're refighting the fights of the 1990s, and we got to sit together and get stuff done. We got to Washington and realized that wasn't going to happen because Mitch McConnell said, I'm making him a one-term president. I'm going to obstruct everything. And the Republicans all fell in line. Well, Obama didn't play golf with them enough. Was the yeah, yeah, he didn't have a fucking beer with them, right? Point, yeah. So it's like, I don't know how you look at that at, at the Obama years and say, you know what? Obama just didn't 
sit down with Republicans yeah. enough. That was the problem. After everything we've seen, after Merrick Garland, after Mitch McConnell and what he did with the Russia investigation, after fucking Donald Trump, after Paul Ryan, like, yeah. how do you look at that and say, like, if only Democrats in Washington reached out to their <laughs> colleagues, we could get stuff done? You don't need a Robert Caro book. You're not calling up Michael Beschloss to tell you that this was like a couple years ago. Right. I, the same people are there. They're actually, they're way worse Right. They're worse and, than they were look, before. They're and, worse than Speaker Boehner. And the reason it's a problem is because the other thing that voters think is, I don't like the fact that there is constant political war in this country, right? Like, I don't want this country to be so divided. So, and that's also a real feeling out there. And that's why people like Joe Biden still. And that's why people are like looking for some moderate candidates as well, because it's, it's a real feeling out there. But as a Democrat, what do you do with the knowledge that, Voters are tired of division in this country, but at the same time, you know that it is impossible to sit down with Mitch McConnell and some of these Republican leaders and get anything done. Yeah, like I've watched a lot of events and I've seen enough polling to understand why a lot of these Democratic candidates aren't going to early states and just hammering Donald Trump for 40 minutes. People do reject the politics of division. They're sick of it. They hate the acrimony. I think that's kind of a perennial concern. But when I see a comment like that from Hickenlooper, I sort of have two choices. One, uh, that it's naive, or two, that you're just telling voters that that's how you're accomplishing things. And either way is going to leave you unhappy because it's not going to work that yeah. way. And we should actually have a real plan to get things done. We should target Mitch McConnell and, and take him out in at the voting booth next time, or we should figure out another way forward. But it's not going to be a kumbaya meeting in his office. Well, it's like, I, I don't think that voters look at Washington and say, you know, what would really make me happy is if you know, the Democrats and Republicans got together and, and had a beer, right, and got along. What they're looking for is for Washington to pass policies that are going to improve their lives. That's what they're, they're sick of the gridlock, right? So there's other ways to get around gridlock than just trying to ask Mitch McConnell over, right? Yes. And that get, that that's why we've spent so much time talking about filibuster reform, right? Like, there, there's only so many ways we can get things done in Washington. We have one party that is obstructionist that has gone off the fucking deep end. And one of those ways is to eliminate the filibuster, which Jay Hensley was talking about. You know, there's a whole bunch of other ways. Win a lot can, of elections. Win That's a lot of elections, one. right? And not just focus on the presidency, focus on the Senate, focus on the House, focus on down ballot elections, focus on redistricting. Focus, you know, like, there's a million things we can do to get Voter things access. done. And I think it is incredibly important for every Democratic candidate running to talk about not just a bold progressive agenda, but how they are going to get that agenda passed. Yep. And Hickenlooper's theory is, you know, that he's going to sit down with Mitch McConnell and and good luck to him selling that theory. Uh, and I think, you know, we're going to hear a lot of that from Joe Biden, too. But I, I do, I think every candidate, whether you believe in bipartisanship, whether you believe in getting rid of the filibuster, you need to talk about your plan to actually get your agenda passed. Yes. Because there is a lot of cynicism right there, uh, out there right now, you know, well-earned cynicism from people that someone's going to tell me something during election and they're going to go to Washington and nothing's going to get done. Yes. And I don't mean to pick on Hickenlooper, but I will be even more cynical and skeptical if Biden goes out and tries to say he can sit down with Mitch McConnell because he tried for eight years. Right. It's not going to work. And he and, and you can and Biden tried for eight years and Biden also had a pretty good relationship with Mitch McConnell yeah. and those people. And it didn't help. No. Barack Obama had a pretty good relationship with John Boehner. John Boehner, and he would talk all the time. John Boehner was like, you know what? I would like to pass immigration reform with you, comprehensive immigration reform. I have guys in districts who have 
no Latinos to speak of, no immigrants to speak of. It's all white districts, and they're saying, we're not going to pass immigration reform, so I can't get it done. That's what John Boehner said to Barack yeah. Obama. So it's like, there's, it doesn't, the relationships are fine to have, but they're obviously not doing anything. Yeah, they don't hurt. They don't hurt, not like, but they're not, the, they're not the answer to getting stuff done. No. And I think the Democrats have to really dig deep to find out what the answer is to get stuff done. Yeah, because it's a mess. Um, all right. When we come back, we will have Tommy's interview with Aswin Subsang. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. On the line is Aswin Subsang, who's a fantastic White House reporter for The Daily Beast, who had the distinct pleasure of covering CPAC this weekend. Swin, thank you for joining the show. I hope you uh, got some uh, hazard pay. Another week and weekend in paradise. (laughs) But no, I do this uh, pro bono almost. (laughs) Um, Okay, so for listeners who don't know what CPAC is, can you give us like the 101 on this conference? Sure, absolutely. The um, annual uh, CPAC conference that used to be held in Washington, D.C., is now held just outside of it um, in National Harbor, Maryland, basically bordering uh, the relatively new MGM casino there, which, you know, can be incredibly useful for blowing off steam Uh when work is said and done. Um, It's an annual affair that is hosted by uh, the American Conservative Union, which is headed by lobbyist Matt Schlapp, who is also an official White House surrogate and Trump ally, and his wife is Mercedes Schlapp, who just so happens to work as a senior official in Donald Trump's White House. Now, uh, for many years, this has been an annual gathering of grassroots conservative activists, um, business interests, uh, politicians, and other 
heavy hitters Mm -hmm. in the conservative movement and right-wing spheres of influence in American politics to give big speeches, have breakout panels, uh, sort of uh, uh, whip up the crowd and get as much media attention as they can, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in the years uh, since the advent of Trumpism, and particularly since Donald Trump rose to power as leader of the free world in 2017, mm-hmm. it's very much become quite simply just the Donald Trump show. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a mm-hmm. multi-day festival of not so much ideas beyond Trumpism is good, President Donald Trump is bay, um, <laughs> college campus political correctness is terrible. And once again, we love Donald Trump and everything his administration is doing. The reason I point that out and why I think it's relevant when your listeners and viewers are thinking about CPAC is my uh, formative experience as a political reporter covering CPAC during the middle of the Obama era. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got to say, it was way more fun yeah. than it is now. Because there were the Ron Paulites, right. there was the Breitbart insurgency that was really getting underway before basically anybody knew what Steve Bannon's name even meant. There were all these different factions. Even in 2016, it was basically Ted Cruz country, mm-hmm. even though Donald Trump was well ahead of Ted Cruz and everybody else as the 2016 frontrunner during the presidential election. So there were all these frictions and tensions that bled into not just the day-to-day programming, but the nightlife that made CPAC so vibrant and exciting that was had this foil and encapsulation of Obama's this big, bad socialist who we have to defeat and is ruining America and religion and everything else. <laughs> so it was this um, abhorrently dazzling shit show, um, particularly when a Democrat is president. Yes. And ever since post-2016 election, um, the friction is gone. Yeah. Factions are gone. Yeah. Everybody is united under the umbrella of Donald Trump is great. That is, and if as long as you believe that and aren't someone who openly identifies as a white nationalist, uh, they don't really see a reason to um, 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 make a big deal of kicking you to the curb necessarily. Yeah. Uh, okay, that is a fantastic overview. And so let's start with the the main event, the headliner of the Trump Show, Donald Trump himself. So I. I watched because I have a uh, big and fulfilling life where I sit on my couch on Saturdays and watch CPAC. I was on the couch. <laughs> uh, I was messing around on Twitter. I got a couple snacks. Like I was playing with my dog. The thing went on for two plus hours. What the hell was it like having to sit there in the hall and pay attention to Trump's full two hour speech? Well, um, it was very much like a Trump rally or a Trump political event. Um, during whether it was the midterm elections where he was jumping around the country or 2015 and 2016 uh, up until election night. Uh, basically, he was there to do a very uh, stereotypically or, or I should say characteristically Trumpian stream of conscious rambling. And it, it was an airing of every grievance um, and not just grievance, but praise that bubbled to the top of his head, which is very much his style mm-hmm. when he's there to basically be a a sort of perverse rendering of a wedding MC, except for a crowd of hundreds, if not thousands, of his um, uh, Trump-adulating uh, uh, political allies, donors, and or supporters. So um, it, it, it was sort of funny, because one of the uh, things that happened to me uh, towards, I think, the middle or the end of the afternoon at CPAC on that day when Trump spoke uh, this past Saturday was... Uh, he, he, he went over 
uh, he was originally slammed for like 50 minutes. Mm -hmm. He ended up talking for, I believe, upwards of two hours and also hitting the stage about 45 minutes late. Perfect. So if you looked at the schedule, there was still a good amount to be done uh, for the rest of that Saturday, which was the final uh, uh, official day of CPAC for this year, including uh, Representative Matt Gates, who was supposed to speak uh, later that afternoon. He, of course, is a Trump-loving congressman representing a district in Florida and has not been shy about throwing himself on any number of Trump-related grenades, Mm -hmm. including basically threatening um, Michael Cohen and going after his personal life uh, the day before Cohen last week was set to testify on Capitol Hill. Now, um, as I was heading back into the hotel and convention center, I think an hour or two or something like that after Trump's rambling, long-winded speech, I happened to bump into Matt Gates and his chief of staff. And um, I just asked him if he was still speaking, and he simply said, nope, I was a quote-unquote willing volunteer uh, to surrender and forego my time in the service of uh, Trump's megas. Of course he was. So um, it, it, it sort of served I, – I don't know why I'm going on about this. I, I guess just to say that served as sort of a perfect metaphor and encapsulation for the kind of person that Matt Gates is yeah. in the Trump era. Well, and you and, wrote a great um, profile of him for the really foot soldier he is for Donald Trump. Um, but anyway, sorry, I cut you off. No, no, no. I was just going to say you wrote a great profile of, of uh, my least favorite congressman that's on the Daily Beast site that people should check out. Oh, it's it's what, really well why? done. He's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> why do you hate him so much? Um, but anyway, uh, to get back to the content of Trump's speech, yeah, it jumped everywhere from um, uh, uh, federal prosecutors and Capitol Hill Democrats tried to nail you with bullshit. Uh, the term bullshit is a direct quote from his uh, speech. He kept going after Democrats, including John Podesta, for getting their ass kicked in the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. He talked about why his administration's policy, uh, draconian policies on things like immigration or policies on trade and how he is handling or failing to handle the uh, Korean Peninsula mm-hmm. is absolutely perfect. And he doesn't mm-hmm. get the credit he deserves. True. He talks about he talked about how there are several people in military personnel he's had the pleasure of meeting overseas who look like they were straight out of central casting and he talked multiple times about how handsome he thought they were and how they uh, could basically be Hollywood stars and he went out of his way to praise the TiVo box uh, which is I believe a portable White House special TiVo box uh-huh. he uses. Uh, both aboard Air Force One and in the White House, and I think also other places, to catch up on his shows. <laughs> he also pointed out how useless his TV set would be without it. So, like I mentioned earlier, uh, there was really no through line between point A and point B in a Trump speech. There's no direct narrative to it other than what bubbles up to the forefront of Donald Trump's mind. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know what? Um, whatever else can be said about that form of um, um, uh, oratory in Trump's America, his supporters <clears throat> at CPACs, at political rallies, those who watch Fox News, everybody like that, yeah. absolutely love it. If yep. you're at any event like that or any Donald Trump speech and you just look around, you, you, you just notice, and I, I'm sorry to say this to your uh, listeners, but it's immediately viscerally clear how much more fun these attendees are having at events like this than compared to even, say, like Hillary Clinton speaking at a gigantic rally during the 2016 race. I mean, they're just gobbling it up. It's like they're watching their favorite reality TV show, uh, except with lace with significantly more xenophobia than you might typically expect. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's just a show for them. Yeah. And um, a perfect example of that was towards the end of his speech. 
he went out of his way to say that he was monitoring the doors in the CPAC ballroom and emphasized that, you know what? We have so much fun here. We love each other so much. Nobody is left early. Not one person is left early. And literally while he's saying this, there is a very conspicuous procession of students and attendees who have been filing out early because they can tell he's about to wrap up. So I think they want to beat the foot traffic or something like yeah. that. And while I was sitting in the press pen, there was also a uh, standing room area of Trump supporters and, uh, and, and CPAC attendees standing behind me. And you could hear them audibly laughing and gossiping <laughs> about the complete juxtaposition, uh, uh, the jarring juxtaposition between what Trump was saying about his supporters and what was actually happening directly in front of him and the clash between Trump and reality that was playing out before their eyes. So they so you could even hear his, his supporters like snickering in the room about how, how, how funny and disconnected from reality he was at the time. Now, yeah. they probably thought it was more awesome than you or I do and less comically dark. But um, um, th there are numerous moments like that when you actually go to a Trump rally that sort of underscore in a pornographic way how his absolute tarnishing of what it means to see what is right in front of your eyes just does not matter to his supporters. Totally. They're having too much fun. They love what he's doing too much with policy and rhetoric and owning the libs. And it, 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 just, it, just, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Totally. You can point out the truth-o-meter about Donald Trump as often as you can to his like, base of supporters. And as we've seen with poll after poll after poll over the past two years, you, you, what damn difference does it make? No, the whole, the whole, thing, is, the whole thing is Russell Crowe and Gladiator, right? It's like, are you not entertained? Um, I mean... Like the speech starts with him dry humping an American flag. Uh, I guess the news the White House wanted to make was them announcing that he'd release some executive order that would help guarantee free speech at colleges and universities by putting their federal aid at risk if they don't protect the political speech, I guess, for conservatives. Uh, it's not clear if the White House can actually take this kind of step through executive action. But, you know, details, details. Um why do you think you kind of alluded to this? Like, why do you think these big conservative crowds love nothing more than an aggrieved college Republican? Uh, because it's a perfect foil and has long been at these types of gatherings, uh, including but certainly not limited uh, to CPAC, to um, – I, I mean, this is a decades-old uh, uh, play. Like, mm -hmm. this is nothing new. It's, it's basically tale as old as, as uh, time in terms of American conservative doctrine to point at college campuses, uh, corrupt left-wing professors, whiny, protesting college kids, and tell you that, that this is – these are the people – both young and old, who are coming for the America and the vast middle of America in particular, in particular, that you know and love. So Donald Trump and other people speaking at CPAC this year weren't doing anything new. They were just playing the same old vinyl that has been collecting dust on the, uh, <laughs> on the shelf for many decades now. True. And um, it, it works just as well, if not better, than uh, ranting about socialism or alleged socialism on the uh, um, conservative conference stage. Um, people who were decrying this new democratic socialism or whatever, starting to enrapture uh, certain chunks of the progressive movement and Democratic Party and Capitol Hill, and saying that Donald Trump is the one man in the 2020 race who is standing between you and Stalinism or whatever, uh, we're really trying to make it seem like the Democratic Party has never done anything like this before. And this is a unique, uh, clear and present danger, um, which was sort of jarring and, and uh, flabbergasting, at least to me, although not at all surprising, to hear that 
basically within the same hour or so of Matt Schlapp mm-hmm. saying from the CPAC stage that um, we suffered through eight years of socialism under Obama. Yeah. Like, and I mean, I don't know, maybe they'll be able to scare Republican voters enough uh, with this sort of new Bernie and AOC branded democratic socialism. But when I hear a democratic lawmaker or politician getting tarred by conservative um, activists or figures or Donald Trump as being a socialist agitator, I mean, doesn't no matter what you do, you can be Mike Bloomberg, and if he ran as a Democrat, he'd still be called a socialist by right, Fox News. Right. So, like, what, what the hell is the difference? That's right. At That's least right. rhetorically. Agreed. Um, you've mentioned him a couple times. The CPAC chairman is a, is this DC fixture named Matt Schlapp. He's one of the most annoying people on Twitter that best, you'll ever come best across. Man at my wedding, Matt. Schlapp, yeah. <laughs> His wife Mercedes uh, works for Trump. She famously stormed out of the White House Correspondents' Dinner when Michelle Wolf uh, was too mean to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. So, did the Schlapp family get really upset about Trump using profanity, or when multiple panelists attacked the ghost of John McCain literally from the stage? Did they did they storm out of their own conference because they're big moral crusaders? No, of course not. I mean, of course not. Got like, it. got it. Look, like so much of CPAC was uh, dedicated to how um, much Elon uh, Omar um, about how much of a raving, destructive, corrosive anti-Semite mm-hmm. she is. And, I mean, like, okay, we, we can get into discussions about our tweets and our rhetoric. Fine. There are plenty of people willing to have good faith disc- discussion about that, uh, both on the right and left in terms of political discourse. I just have zero interest whatsoever of hearing how much they don't like the alleged anti-Semitism coming from her when Donald Trump is president. Mm-hmm. And he can say things like Nazis at Charlottesville. I know I'm dusting off a chestnut from 2017, but it still stands right. making the point that he can say something like Nazis at Charlottesville are very fine people. And all of these people who clamor each and every day to defend him will not say peep about that and just sort of brush it off. Whereas literally anything else that Ilan Omar says they deem as immediately destructively anti-Semitic. Right. There's like there there is no good faith to be had in terms of argument with these people. Right. Um and that is um 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 dramatically underscored whenever they start accusing anybody in the Democratic Party or um uh, Congress on the liberal side or left wing side of being a raving bigot. Like I I mean these the it's almost too darkly humorous to entertain as an argument when Donald Trump is president. That's right. But 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 hey, I, I guess that means I'm throwing out a whataboutism here. But whatever. <laughs> hey, it's what we do here. Um, so like, let me just talk about what it's like to cover these things for a minute because it like the journalists, I think, increasingly and understandably feel a, a little bit threatened or under siege at Trump events. CPAC is like the craziest of the crazy Trump people. I mean, you got members of the Proud Boys hanging out who are a white supremacist group. You have like the wildest conspiracy theorists who've been kicked off Twitter, chasing elected officials around, demanding to get replatformed. How are you treated as a journalist? And and what's the bar scene like when the speeches are all over? Um, you, you mean, how, am I, how have I typically been treated as a political reporter who's very open about not liking Donald Trump and being... I mean, I'm obviously a leftist. Anybody who could follow me on social media knows that. It's yeah. a secret. 
Um, but do you mean how am I treated like after hours at places like CPAC or even um, like when CPAC isn't going on, like when I'm dealing with uh, administration officials? Well, I just mean like, like that. more when you're walking around the conference at CPAC and there's like literally, you know, members of the Proud Boys there who, you know, recently beat the shit out of a bunch of leftists in Brooklyn. You know, I think there's people that are pretty overtly threatening to journalists at these events. I'm just wondering, like, it, does it feel like you're in hostile territory? Like, what is that like? I mean, uh, yeah, I, I got to be honest with you. And I, I tweeted a good amount about this. So um, here, here's my position. Yes, they're always going to be like assholes at Trump rallies or these types of conservative political events who are spoiling for a fight or at least to throw one flabby punch, whether that's a me- at a member of the enemy of the people press or a liberal protester, whatever. There's always going to be people like that. And, um, but my, the vast majority of my experience at Trump rallies or places like CPAC is, yes, the entire audience will immediately be activated and whipped up into a fervor uh, the second Donald Trump starts saying, boo, yell at the press over there, the, the enemy of the people, fake news, boo. But so much of it is like pro wrestling. Right. Because the second Donald Trump is done doing that, and I've done this many times at Trump events and Trump speeches, you walk up to the exact same people who you've seen like 15 seconds ago booing you in your face. And if you ask them, yo, I'm a reporter of the Daily Beast or whatever, and I want to talk, a lot of them will suddenly smile and say, yes, I would. Sure. Why not? Mm -hmm. And just talk, start talking to you like a random human being. So, yes, there are people who will be total fucking dipshits and like drag their thumb across their throat to simulate slitting your throat or actually want to do you physical harm. Those people are really few and far between. Mm -hmm. Vast majority of people there are um, um, you, you can you can deal with them pretty respect respectably. Um, they may not necessarily have the courage to be rude to you to your face um, or when speaking to you one on one. And um, and yeah, like I said, it, 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 it's fucking pro wrestling. Now. Yeah, yeah, it's like they're in oh, a joke. Donald Donald Trump needs a heel if I'm using that the uh, wrestling term correctly. And so oftentimes it's the people typing in the press pen. Yeah, but gotcha. the vast majority of my experience is if you talk to these people, uh, very few people have uh, stones to be as violent, whether verbally or physically, to you directly one-on-one as they seem like they would be on Twitter or while Donald Trump is telling them to boo you. Got so yeah. um, if that makes sense. I yeah, no, it makes, total sense. it makes total sense. I mean, it, it does feel like everyone's in on the joke. Everyone's acting. Last question for you. Uh, during his speech, Donald Trump took a shot at Dave Weigel, who's a Washington Post journalist who's been on the show a couple of times I, for not flying on private jets. Would you like to roast Dave for being in Southwest, like B or C? Uh, like, let's take this guy down. Yeah. Very simple answer. Yeah, so let's roast him all you want on this show. But uh, I made a joke earlier when you were interviewing me about Matt Slap being a best man in my wedding. Mm-hmm. My thing is, uh, full disclosure, Dave Weigel actually was a groomsman at uh-huh. my wedding uh, last year. Um, he's one of my dearest and nearest, closest friends, so full disclosure, just to get that throat clearing out of the way. But one, one, <laughs> one of the funnier things about covering Trump in the past a uh, year or so is how he has slowly but surely started to work Dave Weigel, uh, David Weigel, David, yes, him, more and more into his stump speech grievance spewing. 
<laughs> like, like I, I've noticed this in uh, uh, Trump's oratory. He started to mention Weigel more and more and more in terms of like um, uh, uh, topics that just come to his mind that he clearly has not let go over the past couple years. Um, Weigel, a while back, tweeted a screenshot of a Trump event that had yet to fill up yet and mocked Trump for saying it was, quote unquote, filled to the rafters. Mm-hmm. Um, and he later deleted the tweet because he it was sort of misleading because Dave was just trying to snark at the president on Twitter. But the place hasn't fill, hadn't filled up yet. And the arena ended up being pretty much filled to the brim uh, with Trump supporters. So um, someone on the president's team uh, saw this tweet, uh, uh, Donald Trump himself, and he said this during his CPAC, CPAC speech, uh, didn't see it himself personal because, I quote, don't follow the guy on Twitter. Uh-huh. And they showed it to him. And then I think what happened was Trump had them draft up a tweet to, like, own Dave Weigel on mm-hmm. Twitter by tagging him. Like, at Dave Weigel, fake news, Washington Post is lying about, like, the size of my rally crowd. And that should have been that. But the president, after all these many months, has just not let it go. It's just he amazing. bringing it up at rallies. It's, and I don't get it. I, it's just like any normal brain person would have let this go ages ago. Who the hell cares? But he won't stop trying to own Dave Weigel online and in real life about it. Look, <laughs> it's I, amazing. It, it's a perfect vision um, into like the rank pettiness of Donald Trump's mind. That quite frankly, he applies to foreign affairs and major issues on the global and domestic stage. That he applies to um, going after Dave Weigel during a rally speech. I mean, it's it's fascinating. It, it it's is. absolutely mind-boggling. I can't wait to see how this is written about it in the Donald Trump presidential library. <laughs> it definitely speaks to the shallowness of him, uh, his character, who he is as a human being, but also like, hey, Jeff Bezos, like, get your boy a, a private jet. Let's solve this problem and uh, end this roasting once and for all, right? I know. I, uh, I want to fly on the day wild yeah, private me too. jet. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Until then, we're going to roast away. Uh, Swin, thank you so much for doing the show. I know it's a crazy day with all these announcements about people being subpoenaed and everything else. So I really appreciate it. And thank you for uh, wearing your uh, your combat boots into the CPAC conference and reporting on it for us because it was a very entertaining piece you wrote for the Beast. Anytime, man. And, you know, like CPAC week, every week it roll, rolls around annually. It's like Christmas for me. It's so much <laughs> fun. We'll see you there next year. Cheers. All right. Thank you, Swin, for coming on, telling us all about CPAC. Good times. And uh, we'll see you guys uh, on Thursday. Bye. Bye. you know and trust is now angie and we're so much more than just a list we still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly we can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish so remember angie's list is now angie and we're here to get your job done right get started at angie.com that's a-n-g-i or download the app today Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? 
Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.